Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 26. This episode is sponsored by DeGreiter and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, DeGreiter's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Pania Newell. I'm an assistant professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I am a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Well, ladies, this is our anniversary episode. And today we have the opportunity to talk about a topic not often discussed. It is the idea of faculty moving between academic institutions before receiving tenure. So often I've heard advice from colleagues that absolutely discourage faculty from departing an institution before receiving tenure. However, faculty change institutions for various reasons, which may include they're concerned about their tenure case not being successful. There may be a family circumstance such as a two-body problem or it could be for a location or a better opportunity. One reason it is not frequently done or often discouraged is because sometimes it's hard to do. Basically, it's difficult to negotiate tenure clocks with a new university. You have to renegotiate startup packages, including transferring research equipment or instrument and often graduate students may need to be moved, especially if they're early in their graduate program or logistics may need to be discussed of how to support the graduate students who will remain behind at the old institution. Personally, I think a move before tenure can be successful. And today we have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Andre Claiborne, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at George Mason University. He has successfully navigated the transition between universities while on the tenure track. Thanks for joining us. You're our first guest of February. Thank you. So we want to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself as it relates to your academic background, undergraduate school, graduate schooling, and your research expertise. Great. Yeah. So I got my undergraduate degree at a university that's located in Radford, Virginia, and it's called Radford University, hence the name, okay, same city, or town, because it's not a city, it's actually a town, and it's used to be considered a college town, but it has a great university there. I did my graduate work at Virginia Commonwealth University, but between Radford and Virginia Commonwealth University, I actually worked in industry, and I did not work in STEM, so while I got my degree in STEM, I decided I was tired, I was one of those longer taking managing students at the time. So by the time I got out, I was exhausted. So I worked in transportation, logistics. Then I went to VCU and got my master's degree in applied physics, got my PhD in chemical physics, physical chemistry. And then after that, I got tired of living in the US and wanted to experience the world. So I did a postdoc in Finland in Uvascula, which I always say it incorrectly because I'm not there anymore and they can't yell at me for saying it incorrectly and trying to train me properly. So I went there and then I spent had a postdoc at Argonne National Lab and actually went back 
to Finland because I got a fellowship there, my own funding. So it was my first time getting funding. And then I came back to the US and did, you know, the long postdoc journey that a lot of people have to do these days before you can get an academic position. And I was at Kansas State University. And then I got my first tenure track position at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. And then I actually left there and joined Howard University. And I was at Howard University. And then right now I'm at George Mason University. So I would say I bounced around a bit, but it's been enjoyable for various reasons, of course. And my expertise, I actually do computational chemistry, computational physics. I look at materials, nanoparticles, and even molecules. So I try to look at the entire range and their properties. So my ultimate, and I now I do some machine learning, which I'm learning, so I'm not an expert in that. So I should take that back, right? <laughs> so now, you know, now this is what I do and this is what I love. And yeah, that's a little bit about me. So Andre, I recently read that you received an NSF award from the Division of Chemistry and that you also have an amazing co-PI on that grant. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that award? What are your plans? <laughs> well, it's a really nice award and it's actually to, to use machine learning and artificial intelligence to understand basically molecular materials, right? And molecular switches and transport in those wonderful molecules. And it was actually interesting how me and my co-PI, which happens to be you, Kim, so everyone knows, you know, Kim's trying to be humble, but she's really not. She's just trying to throw hints and bones. And it is your anniversary, your anniversary show. So I'll go ahead and say, you're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. So it's a really great award because we're actually trying to develop a way to predict what molecules will really work in molecular junctions, essentially. So Andre, the reason why you're here, we thought you would be a dynamic presenter in terms of your transition between schools while on the tenure track. And currently you're on the tenure track at George Mason as an assistant professor. However, this isn't your first experience as a tenure track professor. You've done a, something that is pretty much the motivation behind this podcast episode. That is, you've successfully moved between schools while on a tenure track, and junior faculty members are often discouraged from this, but you've managed to pull it off, and you've been successful. So I would like you to tell us about that experience. So I wouldn't call it successful just yet, right? <laughs> so... You know, why wouldn't I call it successful just yet? Because if you're successful, this means that you did it and then you get tenure, right? So let's, <laughs> we got to slow down, slow that train down a bit and actually really kind of say, okay, so you've moved successfully, <laughs> right? From one place to another, but you're still on that tenure train. So, you know, it's chugging along. We're getting there. All right. We just made a few stops along the way. So, I did it for various reasons, right? So when I first got my first position at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, I was there. My wife was in another location, right? This is, everyone knows this, this is the two-body problem that we all go through and try to solve. And so at the time she was overseas and I was here in the U.S. Well, we were trying hard to live in the same location. And so happened that 
Howard University had a position open and I decided to apply for that. And the motivation behind that, one of the primary motivations was to actually have a shot and a chance to be in the same place, right? Because in Washington, D.C. area, you have a lot of opportunity within the federal government to work. And so she had done her time overseas, was coming back and to be placed, we were like, there's a high probability, right? So it's just like statistics at that point that you can get a job in DC and so can I. And I applied and I was fortunate enough to get the position. So I went from a public institution to a private one. And so with that, it was really great. Loved it at Howard. Enjoyed the students. I always enjoy students. I enjoyed the students at University of Missouri, Kansas City. Also, I actually still talk to some of those students that I had in my undergraduate courses. They reach out to me and let me know how they're doing. And at Howard, I just took a chance to apply. Howard's a great institution. And my legacy, my own legacy and my own experience has been at PWIs. And I always felt like primarily white institutions for anyone who's listening and they don't know what that means. And I remember being at Radford University and I'm very thankful for the people that took time out to mentor me. And I I will gladly tell people, yes, I was mentored wonderfully by some of the best white men that you would never imagine. You'd be like, how can you say that? Right. And Hey, I can, because they took time out to mentor me in physics. And I remember thinking to myself that how I wish I would have had someone in that institution that looked like me in the department that I could at least talk to and I could say, okay, that's where I want to be. So I just took a chance to apply. And since I'm born and raised in Virginia, I also really wanted to give back to Virginia in a way. Okay. And because George Mason University is a public institution. It's the largest, I believe, in the state of Virginia. We have about 40,000 students total, undergraduate and graduate there. And I just felt like, okay, if I get the position, it'll be great. I can actually make a difference. I can be a face that is there for the students. And it was one of the main reasons I applied and I took the position. It was hard. It wasn't easy to make that decision because I love the students at Howard. I love the people at Howard University and Howard University did a lot for me. And I will tell you right now, I will drive by and stop on my way to George Mason because it's right here in the area. You have to, I have to pass Howard University to get to George Mason out to Fairfax. So it's really great because I still have those connections and each place is very unique and I love it and, and I enjoy it. Would I advise everyone to do that, right? That's a very different question. People have their reasons. I think you have to discuss those reasons, think about those reasons, and always remember that the grass is not always greener on the other side, and sometimes it is. But the way I like to think about it is, in order for people to get their grass as green as they want to, they've got to put some manure on it, and it's going to stink at times till it turns green. So you have to keep that in mind that not everything is going to be great. So you have to find that balance, but it's not successful, but I'm on my way. I will say that. I'm really inspired. (laughs) It's not easy. As you mentioned earlier, each time you do this transition, 
what has been your major, the biggest concern among all the concerns that you had? You mean before I made the decision to go somewhere or, or, or once during I during got... the decision-making process? The hardest thing for me is that you don't want to seem like you bounce around, you know, like you're unfocused. And this is a big lesson that I had to learn. No matter what, there's going to be people that are going to be like, ah, you're just not, you're not going to stay. You're not going to do this or, or what have you. That was one of my biggest concerns. And of course, I talked to my wife before I made any move, including applying, because, you know, applying is a pain in the butt. So that takes a lot out of you. But I thought about that. And I always think about the colleagues that are there. How am I going to fit in? What am I going to do when I get there? Where am I going to live? You know, some of those things like that. Am I going to be happy? And I found myself, you know, a lot of people may say, well, you didn't say anything about the students. Some of the best advice I've ever been given has been, you never have to worry about students. There's always going to be someone there to take care of them. So that was my biggest concern is getting there, having new colleagues and proving myself. And it's difficult making that adjustment and having to prove yourself over. And you're like, why do you have to prove yourself over? Why would they even hire you if you didn't already do what you were supposed to be doing, right? But no matter where you go, you still go through that. And that was really one of my biggest concerns. So during the process, did you ever speak with other colleagues? So I'm a Libra and I always have this balancing act that I do where I have to circle to everybody and get everybody's opinion, then put it on the board, make a chart, put it in a spreadsheet, do checks and balances and weigh everybody's opinion. So did you ever like speak to colleagues and say, you know, I got this offer or I'm thinking about leaving? If you did, what did they say? Were they positive? Were they negative? Were they neutral? Were they like, I'm going to tell everybody? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's really great. So my first move, I really did not talk to anybody. And part of it was because I was just there a year. And then I actually decided I got to tell somebody, talk to somebody about it. So I talked to one of my colleagues who was in another department in the same college we actually started at the same time and I said, I, I did this thing and I'm waiting on this offer. Maybe it comes, maybe it doesn't, but I couldn't keep it to myself no more. So, you know, and I didn't have time to make a chart and all that stuff. Uh, -uh. I ain't got time for all that. I ain't got time to eat no M&Ms and no bowl, red and green. I, uh -uh. You know, something that's just better left. And that's too complicated, right? That's a lot of ink and stuff like that. So, and I did that when I first moved. And then when I did move from Howard, I did talk to two people, but I really didn't say anything to one other person until like, I, it really got close. Like I had the offer. The other person I talked to beforehand because we had made a promise and a pact and it, you know, sounds nuts, but. We started at the same time. And actually the other person too, we started at the same time. We were like, if you know, if something comes along, let me know. So I was like, okay, well, I'm letting you know <laughs> something came along. <laughs> and it was really interesting, but it was really important to me to one, keep my word, but also just get feedback about that. So I've had some friends that they moved from different schools to the other. 
some of them they said that they kept it as a secret some of them they said that they had a tour of the institute that they moved to before even applying or they gave a talk or you know they went and they assessed the place and if it's a good fit or not did you do any of those or you just saw well Howard sounds like a cool place or George Mason sounds like a cooler place <laughs> so did you do any of those <laughs> I'll be very honest when I applied to Howard I really was just like hey it's in DC <laughs> like honestly I was like it is in DC but also with Howard University comes a legacy so that was very important as well. And I actually had relatives that went to Howard University and they were actually very instrumental in the beginning, not the very, very beginning, but the beginning of a fraternity. I also had a lot of family members that went to HBCUs. And so that was a plus. With George Mason University, I applied very hesitantly. And it was like, okay, it's George Mason University. And even though it was right here in basically in the backyard, essentially, because it's a lot of universities here. I got there for the interview. They brought me in on campus and I was like, wow, you have this, you have this, you have this, you have that. Wow. Who knew? You got this, you got that, you got that. Wow. What? Get out of here. You're the largest. What? Shut up. I didn't know that. Right. So, um, <laughs> and the people were awesome. So I was like, this is really great. Do, 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 do. So, and, and that's really how it really came about. I can't lie either. I went there for a seminar before anything was posted. And this happens a lot. So much, in fact, that I have a seminar coming up at an uh, institution. And so I was just telling my chair and I was like, yeah, I got this seminar at this other institution. And the first thing my chair said, I need the link. Is it a link? Is it on Zoom or is it in person? I'm like, well, you know, it's going to be a Zoominar now because of the Omicron variant, right? So he was like, that's good. Because, you know, I was getting ready to say if it was going to be in person, I was going to have to show up. Like, what? Okay, you're going to have to show up. <laughs> Here's the truth and the reality of it, right? Everybody knows, like, if you see somebody that you want at another institution, your goal is to invite them to see if they're really happy or not. And if they're not happy and you have that chance, that opportunity Maybe I can get to put together a direct hire offer that you can come in and I'm going to offer you just a little bit more than what you got because I want you there and I really like what you do. And it's really quite interesting, you know, to go through that, but that's what happened. So. You're highly desired. That's the bottom line. That's, that's what caused the, all of this commotion was your department chair. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. Or maybe they just want to keep me around because, you know, I'm good at doing certain things. Right. And I'm just like, da, da, da. I'm a good, you know, maybe, maybe. You're good, good, citizen. good citizen. I'm a good citizen. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let me ask you a more serious question then. Were you ever worried about extended tenure clock along all these moves? And how is that affecting you in reality? That's a great question. So extended tenure clock, I'll be very honest. When I made the move to Howard University, I was very concerned. That was pre-COVID. So I was a little worried about the extended tenure clock, yes. But in my mind, I really felt like, okay, I got some more time. Like, that is... <laughs> As crazy as that sounds, I was just like, cool. 
I got just one extra year. That other stuff I did just warmed me up. We good. I still got my ideas. I can still write them grants. I can still get them in. Okay. So that's what I thought. Making the move to George Mason University was very different because I made that jump from R2 to R1. And the extended tenure clock actually puts me under stress. But it's not for me, it's not really extended because that's something that if a person does make that jump, it's always something you can negotiate that, hey, I've been here for X amount of years and I did X amount of stuff and I'm not going to lose that X amount of stuff. And I always tell people when I made the move from the first move, I was like, okay, it was one year, no big deal. But the second move, I did a lot with a lot of students, right? And it is very concerning. I think if a person is considering making a jump from, you know, one type of school, whether it's a PUI and you're trying to make a jump from a PUI to a school that has a graduate program, you got a lot to think about because I don't care how good you think you are at a PUI. When you make that jump from a PUI to an R2 with a graduate program, or you're trying to jump to an R1 with a graduate program, yes, that tenure clock may get extended, but you're going to have to bust your butt twice as hard, three times as hard. So it is very stressful, especially right now, because I have to really think about what am I up against when it comes to that clock? Because if you don't get tenure, I'm old, be honest, right? And I got a family to think about. So, you know, if I don't get tenure, this company we was just talking about, it might be on an accelerated pace. So, that's the reality of the situation. You know, it, this is what you got to think about. You got to think about all of that stuff. And so you just got to be careful because it's a real, you know, I make light of it because the way I feel about it, I'm going to do no matter what, whatever I got to do. I told my wife, I said, if I don't get tenure, don't worry, I got a backup plan. And she asked me, what's your backup plan? I said, I'll be a greeter at Walmart if I got to bring in some money. Okay. I will sweep floors, whatever I have to do, but it is something, you know, I have to think about like what's next if I don't get tenure now I move. Right. And so then I'll be on here talking and then they'd be like, "Uh Oh, it wasn't successful. So maybe I shouldn't do it. Right. I think about that. It's in the back of my mind. And this year alone, I have to think about it more because I can't apply for so many grants that newbies can. So that actually hinders me in a way because, hey, I'm more than 10 years out from my PhD. This is not my first tenure track. I got my first tenure track at this time. So I'm no longer eligible because that timeline that's come and gone. So these are things that I think about that add that stress. It just means that I have to work harder. I have to put in more work. So, yeah. Yeah. It's really a balance between or among all your responsibilities, the timelines, opportunities. So everything sort of come together and then you have to assess what is the priority? How do you really balance or utilize everything that you have at hand to make the best of it? Exactly. I really like your honesty and not 
sugar coating that oh everything is wonderful i'm in better school <laughs> and you know everything is awesome look at me i have this nsf and we are going to have this company and probably kim would not ever talk to us after that <laughs> but i do realize how hard it becomes when you start your start date is not like right after your phd because i compare myself i came with six years experience at the doe lab and I was right off the bat, I was not qualified for any of those grants that they say young investigator, five years. I was I was out. And those add a lot of stresses because you are competing with more senior people, but you are still junior in your position. I mean, I don't know. It to me it was kind of not fair and prepel probably they will be like, well we didn't ask you to go to the DOE lab, so it's your fault. But I do appreciate how in a really honest manner you answered that there are pluses and minuses, but it was really great to hear your experience and walking through different schools and just providing your experience and sharing your experiences with us. I just want to say, I actually did one move before tenure as well, but that was a forced move because Tulane, I was at Tulane and the department got closed permanently. So I had to move. I had to look for another job. And a lot of those concerns that you were talking about were in my mind also, because there was a timeline. And I also started with a lot of my friends uh, at the same time and they continued on and I felt like I lost years right unnecessarily it wasn't my fault <laughs> I didn't choose to do this but I was forced to make a move but fortunately I didn't have a family at the time so that was not one of my concerns which I think if nowadays you know if you ask me to do that again I would it just so many attachments is harder. It's way harder when you think about all those other responsibilities besides just, you know, being in academia and trying to figure out a way within your field. It's totally different thing. You have to really think about, you know, holistically the whole situation. Yeah, definitely. So Andre, I have one follow-up question. So when I moved between institutions, right, I was in the opposite situation. I already had tenure, but one of my major concerns still was how to sustain my research. So between the three schools, what was key in making sure that you sustain your research between each transition? Because I'm going to be a little bit stereotypical here. I imagine it was easier because you didn't have to move a laser or a vacuum pump or cryogenics. Am I a little bit naive in that sense? Just because you're not an experimentalist from that, you know, bench scientist point of view. I think that really depends. I would say if I did experiment, I could envision depending on what I did, it could be more difficult because I would have to move my equipment. Then my equipment got to come in, right? It's got to be untagged from one school, then shipped, tagged at another school, then brought to the lab and set up, right? So that could be a pain in the butt, no doubt about it. And that would absolutely slow a person down. I think depending on where a person would move, they could get up and going, right? Because I think as researchers, we all have the idea that I have this grand idea I want to do. But 
what am I going to do if I'm waiting on lab renovations, right? We all have that backup idea that we can actually get in the lab, get started, get rolling right away. With computation or theory work, one would say it could be easier. I think it depends on if what you have to take with you. And by that, I mean, if you have students to take with you or not. Because if you do not have students or you're not able to advise your students, you're the person who's training. If in your startup, they say, we're going to give you a startup, not a postdoc with that. Guess what? That's on you. You got to train all the students all over again. And now you're at a new institution. And if you're at that new institution, do they have the computational resources they have? And even if they have those resources, do they have the technical support to help you out? If you're a person that, yes, I do certain things, but when it comes to installing some code, I cannot install the software on the system and create the modules because I'm not the administrative person. Are you able to help me with that? And then if you're not able to help me, now I've got to figure out how to do what I need to do for that and train my students and wrap up those papers that I'm trying to get out, right? So it can still be just as challenging. I think maybe minus the transfer of equipment, unless you do have a special computing instrument that you do want to take with you for that reason. And I will just say that, yes, while it is a pain to have to transfer equipment, a lot of us computational and theory folks, we have to pay for code. And there are some codes that we pay for that will explicitly tell you if you buy it at one institution you cannot transfer it to the other and that means what you got to get to that other institution and shell out more money before you can continue to use the code so you know that's just how it works I get it it's a business if you're going to use codes like that no problem with that because that's a, a business model but those are also things that we have to take into consideration. And it's about being focused and really saying, okay, if I'm going to do this, now let me readjust and write a plan. And for me, that's what it was really about is if I get here, what now, what am I going to do in year one? Now, who am I going to train in year one? How am I going to do this in year two? And in year two, what am I going to do? And then in year three, I think COVID itself has thrown me. And if anyone else decides to move, it's thrown a lot of things off for sure. But you still have to buckle down and plan in those cases. So Andre, thank you so much for joining us. I think you touched on a lot of different aspects about your transitions between institutions. And I feel like you, like to use Lucy's word, motivated, inspired, and you presented the transitions in such a way that it shouldn't feel scary anymore to people who are thinking about it. So I think that for those of you who are thinking about transitioning, I don't think you should take it lightly. I think you should re-listen to this podcast and think about all of the things that Andre has said. So thank you so much, Andre. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you and happy anniversary to you all. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, we'll make, I'll make a deal. I'll come back next year on your next anniversary, anniversary number two, and then we'll talk about how I'm doing on this train, right? A recap on this tenure train. And then, you know, I'll bring cake next time also for you all, cake and, and balloons and, and things like that with big twos and stuff. So, but thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you all. And yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. This episode was sponsored by DeGrider and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. 
For students and researchers in mathematics, the Griders 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by sponsors and listeners like yourself. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.